Small Face. I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines and hope a few interesting insights come out. Today, I speak with Antonio Martinez Lopez. Antonio and I met at an alumni event of the Fletcher School's Global Master of Arts program a few years ago and kept in touch over the years. Antonio is a diplomat with Venezuela's Foreign Service. He is currently head of political section at Venezuela's embassy in Baghdad. Antonio shares his lifelong aspiration to live the ideals of Simon Bolivar that moved him as a young student and still do today. Hello, Antonio. Great to speak today and thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello, Philippe. Uh, hello to you. Hello to all the GMAP community. Uh, I'm very uh, happy to be here with you today in this podcast. Fantastic. Thanks for making the time. And I'm, I'm glad that we were, we were able to, to arrange this, uh, despite the distance uh, with me in Singapore and uh, yourself uh, in Baghdad. Yes, of course. Uh, especially during this time of pandemic, uh, hopefully post-pandemic, uh, we have been stopped in both uh, our locations. Uh, we are also eager to hear from all our GMAT colleagues about their stories. But in my case, uh, last year was very difficult, but now the the locations are getting closer because now we are able to travel to travel a little bit more than than before yeah hope, hopefully you, you get to visit the uh, the expo as well and uh, in what should be a, a no, in normal times is an easy uh, 90 minute flight from Baghdad to uh, to Dubai yes now now the skies are open from most of the intra-regional uh, countries, I mean in the Gulf. Uh, yes, I'm looking forward to visit our our pavilion. I mean, I, as you know, I am from Venezuela. I'm looking for visiting the Venezuela pavilion. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and uh, in my case, I haven't had a business trip in uh, eighteen months or so, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I might I might have my first adventurous trip to London in uh, in uh, next month. <laughs> And uh, Antonio, so we, we we met in the context of uh, of our school's uh, alumni event uh, a few years ago, uh, and at the time you were diplomat in post in Tehran, and right. I, I I believe this was your first posting in the uh, external service of the uh, Venezuelan Foreign Service. I'd love to. Uh, Ask you what was your your first impression when you arrived in Tehran, and what, what did your what did your family think as well? Well, uh, I will start about my family impression because uh, my wife, when I told her that we were moving to Tehran, you know, uh, you know, she was very happy, but for some reason, she was thinking she was thinking that she was moving to the desert. So when <laughs> so when when we arrived, she was like all this amazed. Oh, there is there is streets, there is there are highways, there are buildings. Oh, yes, of course, normal city. <laughs> so Tehran is a very big city. It's a, I think it's a, one of the 
bigger metropolis in the in the Middle East region. Uh, the people there is very friendly, very amicable. Um, you know, as Venezuelan diplomat, we have a, a very nice relationship with the Iranian government. So the 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 start of the mission and all of the mission went went good. And it was very interesting from the field of international relations, as you know, because I remember that uh, I, by the time I was doing the GMAP, uh, the GCPOA negotiations were were being happening on that time. And I had the opportunity also to make uh, my capstone on, on that on that subject with the assistant of Professor Richard Schultz, who was very helpful with that. And all went great. And it was a very grateful, yes, grateful, that's, that's the word, very grateful learning experience from the ground, from the ground, yeah. I mean, from the, from the side or, or one of the main sides or the main party in the negotiations of the JCPOA. And how, how did you get the idea to 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 uh, have this as your um, uh, thesis topic? Yes, I by that time I was the head of the political section, so I was yeah. very immersed in all that was happening. I had the chance to get a lot of insight from both the diplomatic officials uh, of the government there and of course of the diplomatic corps, especially because all the GCPOA parties have their embassies also there. So, well, no, no sorry, not, not all, but through some <laughs> representation, through some representation there, we, we got the insight also from those that were not there at that time. On on the, the progress of the discussions and, and some of the contentious points, I, I guess. Exactly, exactly. If I may get into some insight from my from my point of view, the the Obama administration and the Rouhani administration, they had like uh, of course keeping the distance. Uh, we can make a kind of analogy because for the Rouhani administration, this agreement was very necessary in order to push back the economy in order and of course for gaining legitimacy from the political system because the train of the moderates has been persecuted by the conservatives as we see now with the current Iranian government. And on the Obama side, also the debate with the Republicans and the position of other countries, for example, like uh, the state of Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, how um, together with the Re with the Republican Party try to boycott the JCPOA. I remember that when I was doing the GMAP in Boston to watch the the advertisement from from the Republican side to boycott and to go against the JCPOA as an uh, as an outcome 
we have almost two years, almost two years of a better perspective of for stability. First, in the Middle East, and second, between the relationship, I mean, from that point of view of how they they have been be, be before, like very tense relationship, and uh, with the JCPOA, it was ease, this relationship between the USA uh, and Iran. Unfortunately, the parties, as we all know, um, uh, they left the table. Um, I hope that for the sake of of world peace, um, the regional stability here in the Middle East, we can see the parties going back to the table very soon. Can you take us back to um, the times when the JCPOA was still in discussion and you, you were gathering, you were getting insights uh, about the status of negotiation, but you were also living there. What, what was the, um, the mood like in, 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 in the street? When the GCPOA was finally signed, uh, there, there, were there, there were celebrations in the streets. Celebrations yeah. like when the Iranian soccer team won the World Cup. Wow, something like that. It was, it was a very cheerful celebration. There was no any attempt from the conservative side to to stop these happy demonstrations in the streets. And even the leadership, I mean the re the religious leadership, uh, supported these celebrations and gave the vote of confidence to the Rouhani administration, of course, until the Trump administration uh, finished this situation. Because you, you lived in Tehran until, I think, around 2019? Yes. So how did the mood evolve over time? Because there was a, a period of time when, even under the Obama administration, uh, so some of the expectations about the JCPOA maybe didn't translate into the full expectations that were created at the time. How how did you live through that? Well, uh, we can say that the general hope that was uh, in, immersed in the in the environment of the. I mean, in the social environment, in the political environment of the of the Iranian society, of course, were diminishing little by little because the expectations were not, uh, I mean, fulfilled even in the even in in a in a little sphere. So because may. One of the main expectations were were about the EU EU Iran trade channel, an yeah. special trade channel, but at the end that was not uh, feasible. Yeah, yeah. Especially from the EU side and the 
and some pressures from other extra regional actors that yeah. were against the JCPOA and of course many European states were against the JCPOA even though after was was agreed. Yeah. So that was that was one of the main reasons. But from the youth, from the young population, there were a lot of hope, a lot of projects of support for for academics, for technical development from outside, from the medicine, and the Iranian government were fulfilling their commitments. This is registered by the UN and the Security Council. Can you also take us back to the the process of uh, writing the the thesis itself? Because you were in this interesting position of being, on the one hand, a student or a, a scholar, an academic, but also, of course, representing the the interest of, of Venezuela. So, h- how did you balance the, the two in your in your in your work? Well, I try to focus on the political and international relations uh, theories. Yeah, uh, based on what was happening between the parties involved. Uh, I, I try to not uh, uh, combine what was happening with the bilateral re- relation between Venezuela and Iran. And that worked out. That worked out very well because uh, I'm a political scientist and it was a great piece of, of analysis and insight yeah. that I could develop. And of course, that serve me also as a sort of of uh, roadmap for future analysis and yeah. even even for for my current job in terms of how how the uh, alliance coalitions um, between um, among external actors and internal political factions have defined the international politics of the war powers and the the emerging powers and the regional powers in the Middle East. Um, We can we we We've witnessed how, for example, the U.S. power projection during that time, during that specific period, uh, were diminished somehow by 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 two main main landmarks. One, the JCPOA, that of course gave Iran the possibility to to strengthen their regional influence in the Middle East. And second, the mismanagement by the Western powers of the collateral outcomes of the Arab Spring, what happened in in Syria, didn't go well. And Russia take over that gap. So in about a period of one year and a half, the landscape 
of the geopolitical uh, space in the middle in the Middle East region in terms of influence um, power projection change change that in a way not expected this also of course made the US leave the table because it was not only an issue of compliance of the agreement. It was also an issue of losing this regional influence that were that the US were having for the last uh, 30 years in the Middle East. Yeah, probably core core interests as well that were uh, maybe redefined. I find it's the story fascinating, and I'd, I'd love to ask you if you could share how did you get into this like how did you get into political science did you always uh, want to do that uh, as a child how did it happen well uh, when i finished high school my intent were was to be a professional major league baseball player so, <laughs> right. so what i did was joining civil in engineering in one of the best uh, public universities in Venezuela, and they have quite good university baseball team. So that's what, <laughs> that was <laughs> the main reason. <laughs> Great. But after that, there was like a huge strike for almost six months, a student strike, university strike. So what I did during that time was reading on political science and history literature yeah. so i changed my mind and i just went into politics so i took wow. the political science degree uh, of course stopping my pro my sports career you also had to sp stop baseball yeah yeah because that was about the same time uh, i got a uh, injury in my knee oh no but after the injury uh, Here, I I decided anyway to to pursue my my academic studies in in political science, especially in order you know to help people from the governmental side or from the society side. And thinking that I mean in the sphere of Venezuelan foreign policy, the importance of pursuing the integration and unity and, and political unity of of Latin America, that was one of the main ideas of our liberator, Simón Bolívar. And well, with, with that uh, idea in mind, when I graduated from political science, I, after the next year, I joined the, the foreign service by exam, so I'm a career diplomat since 2005 can i pause you for for a second because i'm just reflecting on what you just said i mean you, you there was a six month strike and and that gave you time to to read and then clearly something major happened in you uh to 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 prompt this change of direction C can you share a bit more what you were reading and and was it was this a an insight, like a page that you read that just opened your mind, or how did it happen? Okay, I will, if you want me, I will tell you. Uh, I didn't want to get into ideology and adoctrination, but well, I will. I will do my best. <laughs> so, 
most of the reading were, uh, were about Venezuelan history and how the Venezuelan army struggled with the Spanish army to liberate Latin America. As you know, Simon Bolivar is called the liberator. The Venezuelan army is one of the few armies of in world history that only uh, left its border, its own borders, to liberate and not to conquer. In this case, from the Spanish kingdom. And Simón Bolívar had the idea of having a republic of nations from Mexico to Chile. Uh, Simón Bolívar founded the, the Gran Colombia, which is today, as uh, we know, Venezuela, Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, and, and Panama. So yeah. we used to be one country, a federal one, for almost maybe five years. A little less. And after Bolivar passed, uh, yeah. that that project uh, went down, crashed because yeah. of the extraterritorial and extra regional interests of some powers yeah. and an emerging power like like the U.S. on that time. So that that project couldn't be concreted for yeah. Yeah. for good. But this project. Uh, is necessary in terms in terms of how the Latin American governments should uh, chair and try to get a consensus on foreign policy, economic policies, financial policy, even defense policy, in order to have an space. I mean, a serious a serious space in the balance of power, especially with a uh, war power as neighbor, as the U.S., the emerging powers that are now gaining a huge, huge, huge influence in the international arena. Yeah. You were reading about Simon Bolivar's uh, story and ideas, uh, and, and clearly it moved you a lot uh, to, to then prompt a desire to direct your life to help people make a better society and, and work on the unity of Latin America in, in Bolivar's spirit. So clearly you, you think Simon Bolivar's idea apply today as well. And I wanted to ask you then, at the time that Bolivar was, was uh, leading the revolution, it was an age of revolutions in Europe as well. Do you think we live in another age of revolution now, where under maybe a different shape, where Bolivar's idea is especially relevant? As you know, Bolivar was a liberal. He was very influenced by the idea by the ideas of the European political philosophers, especially Montesquieu, Rousseau. Yeah. He admired pretty much the American democracy. In terms of its institutions and its exchange and its and all the potential, but at the same time was afraid because all this uh, emergence power without without uh, without the Latin American united yeah. would be easy to get a major influence from the north yeah. of the continent. So that was what he was insisted on having a a better unity and a strength, a position for getting a balance 
in the relationship. Yeah. If we can talk about a revolution right now, we can talk about the struggle between climate and yeah. economy. That was yeah. the main issues, and I mean, it's the main, the main issue for the humanity survival. Yeah. Even we are trying. Well, even the the, the humanity is working on colonizing another planet in our solar system, but this is our planet. I mean, we cannot, we will not be able to replace it if we follow, if we still follow this model that is being followed right now. If we look at the the original idea of Simon Bolivar of, of uh, uh, a federated state of South America, was it was it feasible? Do you think, or was it a good idea? And 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 if if he'd succeeded, do you think it would have changed the trajectory of, of Latin America? Well, yes. The idea of every nation is to have a strong state and a strong government that projects its power as a nation. So this nation of this government can choose how. Or in which way having this projection that this is a projection of military power, this is it a projection of economic power, is it a projection of cultural power? So I yes, Latin America shall be united. This is our call to be united in order to have a balanced and equilibrated position in the international sphere. If you allow me and I know, and I know this subject is very, very controversial, but yeah, but we are talking about Bolivar. So uh, late, late President Chavez tried to do this and succeed in the creation of uh, uh, UNASUR. It's like in, in English, like uh, United Nations of South America. Yeah, and the creation of CELAC. The lag in English is like a co community of Latin American and Caribbean states. So yeah. both ONASUR and CELAC, they have been working in strengthening their institutional frameworks and having, you know, all its um, necessary uh, multilateral headquarters in terms of general secretariat, uh, finance, uh, defense. And yes, this project is still alive. Uh, most yep. most of the Latin American governments are pursuing it. Not, not in terms of even in, of political ideology. I mean, both right and left leaderships in Latin America are half a of consensus of how important is is this yeah. is this idea. Of course there are some difference on the scope of the project, yeah. but yes, this is what Venezuelan diplomacy is doing in Latin America, yeah. strengthening the unity. Yeah. And no I mean without getting into what into in Venezuelan internal politics, I am sure that all Venezuelan societies, all all political parties have a consensus 
the necessity of working for the Latin American unity based, of course, on Bolivar ideas. When I was trying to learn more about Simon Bolivar, there's one um, aspect I was struggling to reconcile a little bit, and I'd love to get your your views as well, is in the uh, political uh, aspiration and in the message, Bolivar was, as you said, very uh, liberal and looking at um, a federal system. But he, he seemed to have some absolutist side to it as well, in terms of authority in in the in the actual implementation of what he was doing and and also some of his remarks seem to indicate uh a, a struggle that he was having uh with with some of his quotes famous quotes like um america is ungovernable or uh being a bit pessimistic about the, the 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 chances of success of his project. So I, I was really keen to get your your thought on 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 that. I mean, during the independence war, we needed to have a unity in command. I mean, by that time, the the Spanish army was the strongest army in the world. Spain, by that time, was a war power. So we were fighting that war power with uh, with our chests open. So of course we needed unity in command. So for keeping the unity in command, we had, uh, I mean, from that period, the government should be necessarily uh, aligned and some liberties in in the sphere of of democracy were suppressed. But but that not happened during the whole period because remember that Bolivar founded Bolivia through Antonio José de Sucre who was the founder of, of the and the writer of the Boliv of, of the Bolivian constitution so yes because of the characteristics the features of the colonial post-colonial society used uh, to be governed by a king, of course, there were some recommendations of having a figure of authority in the executive power. Uh, however, Bolivar himself didn't want to be the leader in that regard of Venezuela or any of the of the liberated post-colonial Hispanic Latin American countries. Bolivar, I can assure, was was a Democrat, and also he was a fan, as I told you before, of Montesquieu. And we have to consider the features of the Venezuelan, so of the post-colonial society, yeah. and he had to adapt to adapt that concept in order to have a successful outcome. What happened after the Liberator Pass was that there were internal power conflicts among the generals of the independence. Ah, uh, well, the the project didn't didn't succeed as as planned. I'd like to ask you about your uh, early career experience. Uh, you mentioned Unasur and Silak. I think you you worked for for Unasur. How was it like? I, I imagine you as uh, full of optimism and enthusiasm. 
with a desire to to improve uh, multilateral institutions, and then you went into into a few of them. How was it like being uh, plunged into the the reality of these organizations? Uh, yes, from from the Venezuelan go governmental sector. Uh, I mean, from the foreign ministry, I was involved in the construction of this multilateral, of this regional, regional multilateral institutions. I got involved, especially in the financial committee. Um, I have the chance to work on and follow up the Sucre. Sucre was a digital currency that was um, brought to to ease the trade among regional states. It worked for about two years, but after that, the political changes in Latin America from left to right and the aversion that for some people caused the figure, the figure and personality of of President Chavez um, didn't help with with it yeah. with the development of this digital currency. Yeah, so that that's fascinating that you were involved in a digital currency uh, pro project. Uh, uh, what was it like? Uh, almost t 10 years ago, and uh, yeah, more sort of great with with. Uh, With now Ecuador going full into Bitcoin, <laughs> it's a interesting uh, return to that. So, in, in the details and in and in of the financial policy of of Unasur, it's been very difficult because of the different perspectives on economic policy from the different governments. It has been very, very, very difficult. But we are optimistic that we can help with the institutionalization of the secretariat and the political institutions and subjects like uh, uh, internal movement of people can be yeah. uh, sooner than, than later finished. Uh, so we can be, we hope that we can be talking in the, in the next decades of a UNASUR nationality of, or, or a UNASUR passport. We are, we are working on that. Maybe I could ask you then if you compare your idealism of uh, your early career and, and um, how you feel today. What has changed or what, what is the same and, and what is your goal now, if I may ask? That, that's very interesting, interesting because I kind of feel feel the same. I think I that did ha, ha, that hadn't changed. That hadn't changed at all. Of course, I ha, I have a lot more of experience, a lot more of academic back, background, a lot more of tools. But I do think that it is necessary to help with the foreign policy of a country like Venezuela, which is not only an oil-rich country, but it's also rich of natural resources and biodiversity. 
and uh, we are in a geopolitical position that it can be used as a lot with a lot of influence to the American hemisphere and especially to the Latin American regional region in order to have a position and a balanced position in the international arena. Yeah. And the option, the other the alternative to that is just living living in a neo neo colonial uh, economic war managed by the big corporations, not only from the US but from Asia, from any country. So I think that it is it is necessary to have two things unity in political positions in Latin America and also uh, the capacity of paving the way for the intra-regional dialogue among the economic and financial elites of Latin America in order to have a more Latin American identity. Yeah, with yeah. that help us with that. So so it sounds like it's a it's an idealism that has crystallized itself uh with experience with tools with maybe a, an element of realism but is 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 strengthened and and uh and focused. Yeah yeah you 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 need realism of course. I used to say that we have to be idealists but we have to put the glasses of realism otherwise yes. you you will be blind you will be just shooting flowers <laughs> shooting flowers. Not flowers. Uh. when i when i asked you if you were uh happy to come on this podcast i i you told me that you'd been running your own uh radio show uh i believe it, it was called bolivar uh, uh it was about bolivar america or homeland uh, yes uh, the title uh, of the show was was uh was this was the uh, la la patria america like uh, our homeland is america meaning is it, from, yeah. from mexico to chile all latin america yes that was the title of the show and uh, yes it was a uh, of course a political directed uh, show uh, with a tar targeting the population that support the bolivarian process uh, but also to anyone who 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 cares about this position of unity that we should have. And uh, what were the, the, your favorite memories from that time? Well, I had the chance to interview many people from around the world, not only from Venezuela. I had the chance to interview leaders that are currently... Um, that from that around that time there were just like uh, incipient political leaders of of the societies, and now they are running for presidents, uh, chosen as majors or governors of their cities. And of course, I have made also friendships with a lot of academics yeah. from Latin America during that time try trying trying also to to enrich the political debate with uh with academic perspective right 
beyond that ideology and and yeah. as as we we're getting to, towards the end of our conversation i, I had a, the most uh, politically sensitive question i wanted to leave it last uh and as i know as a diplomat you probably get invited quite a lot to to uh, to eat <laughs> and so do you prefer iraqi masgouf or uh, iranian abgusht or dizi no, well, no, we prefer uh, arepa, like it's the one, one of the most famous Venezuelan dishes. I prefer that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. That's a great, great yeah. diplomatic answer. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, both, if, both dishes are, uh, are delicious. Those dishes you, <laughs> you mentioned, both are delicious. They are great. Great, great. Great plate. Is it? Excellent. Yeah, I did. I, I did mention on this uh, on this podcast, but I, I I spent five years in Iraq and I visited Iran, and of course I I ate a lot of both and enjoy enjoy both of them as well. Antonio, it's been really really nice speaking to you today. Uh, I wanted to uh, ask you if there's if there's anything uh, you'd like to 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 say actually before before we close. Yes, I would like to thank uh, you for the opportunity, uh, and also I would like to thank the Fletcher School, especially the GMAC Fund, which made possible for me to have having the chance of graduate in the Fletcher School. And of course, I remember with very much appreciation, uh, Dean Notter. Yeah. And, I, and I hope that the new management of the Fletcher School follow up her legacy yeah um, big shoes to fill yes yes <laughs> <laughs> Great. thank you thank, thank you. you very much thank you thank you so much Antonio